turning there, that's the last book in the Bible, let me remind you that Sandy Keaton, who ministers to children in the inner, inner city, will be here next week and the week after to pick up the Christmas stockings that you're filling. So remember that's next week and the week after. Now, if you're a guest with us, we are starting a series in the book of Revelation. Notice it's not Revelations plural, it's just Revelation. And if you have a title in your Bible, it probably says The Revelation. I, that title is taken from those first verses in verse 1, where it says The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Greek text, it simply says A Revelation. It doesn't say The Revelation. It's, just, it's a revelation of Christ. And the word revelation uh, comes from a big Greek word, apocalypsis. You've heard of the apocalypse. There was a movie out back in the Vietnam War days called Apocalypse Now. It was about catastrophe and disaster coming upon the earth because of a world war. And apocalyptic literature, and revelation is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is a form of writing that contains codes and cryptic language using symbols and words but not to be taken literally but to be taken uh, figuratively. You have to figure out what those words and those symbols mean. So you have all kinds of numbers, 7, 1,000, 144,000, you know, 10, 3.5. You have fractions even here in, in the book of Revelation. And fractions mean something. If seven means something that's complete, guess what a fraction is? Something that's incomplete. So you have to understand all this before you can understand the book of the Revelation. So there's this cryptic language, and it's written in code, so that if this book, this letter written by John the Revelator, the seven churches, would happen to fall into wrong hands, the hands of the enemy, the Emperor of Rome, good to have you back, yeah, let's see, just our back, back today, and he was back last week, I heard. Uh, if happens to fall into the hands of the enemy, they won't know what it's about, because they don't have ears to hear. They don't have the ability to discern the meaning of the code words. And so that is what apocalyptic literature is all about. And this book deals with the future. We see at the end of uh, verse in the middle of verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his servants, now watch this, things which must shortly take place. So this deals with the future, something that's going to take place in a short time. At the end of verse 3 it says, For the time is near. He tells that he's writing about certain things that are going to come to pass. For the time is near. So it deals with the future, but the majority of things in the book of Revelation deal with the near future. The near future, the immediate future of John's audience. So when we take the majority of the material in Revelation and we put it in the way future, the far future, if John was writing about things that were taking, going to take place in 2050, then that's not something that's going to shortly come to pass. That's not something in which the time is near. So when you approach it, looking at the book and saying, these events are going to happen in the far future, you're probably making a big mistake in your interpretation. You need to see the events taking place in Revelation as taking place 
in the near future, close to when John writes. So I think a lot of people make a mistake in the way they handle Revelation. Now I handled Revelation that way for most of my adult life and I think I was wrong. So I just want to tell you that. I held to what was called a futuristic interpretation of Revelation. And I said, well, here's the Antichrist. Who is it? Well, it's somebody out there in the future. Could it be, you know, Obama? Could it be whatever? Uh, John didn't know Obama from Oshmama. You know, he didn't, he didn't understand any of that kind. He's writing to an audience about things that are going to come upon that audience, and they, they do, need to be ready when it happens. And so he tells them that he's going to write these things, and they need to heed it. This is a book that's going to be read aloud, and they need to heed the things, that, the warnings that he gives. Now, are there things about the far future in the book? Yes. It talks about the second coming of Christ, chapter 19. So I think chapter 19, 20, 21, 22 are in the far future. But most of the other stuff is going to happen very near the time that John writes. So we call verses 1 through 3 the prologue, okay? The prologue. And if you would read verses 1 through 3 like we did last time, you would see that the nature of Revelation and its means of conveyance are listed in verses 1 through 3. We discovered a couple weeks ago that it originated with God, didn't we? It's God who uh, re revealed this. It says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. See? It was given to Jesus Christ. It was delivered by an angel, it says at the end of verse 1. It was received by John, the revelator, his servant. You see that at the end of verse 1. And John, and he received it through a vision. He saw pictures in his mind, and he wrote down those pictures of beasts and women with stars in their hands and all these kinds of weird things. And then it was delivered and read aloud to seven churches, to the saints of God. So that's the prologue, verses 1 through 3. Now we're going to pick up today, verse 4, and this is the salutation. And look what it says. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, Asia here in Bible times was uh, what we call today the western third of Turkey. So these are seven churches located in what today is western Turkey. And those seven churches that he mentions in verse 4 are listed in verse 11. If you look over there, you will see you have seven churches in Asia in the middle of verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So seven churches. Now, these are not the only churches that are located in Asia Minor. There are other churches located in that region. Colossae, the church at Colossae is located right there in Asia Minor. The church at Hierapolis is located right there in Asia Minor. There are a lot of other churches located in this region. But John writes to these seven churches as representative churches. These churches, seven, represent all the churches. And so he's going to write to seven churches. And he picks out seven particular churches whose characteristics are representative of all the churches. So there's nothing that's happening in these seven churches that are not happening in all the other churches. And so he picks out seven. 
churches to write, in which to write. Now remember, he's writing the seven churches about events that are going to come to pass very shortly. Now, what's happening in the Roman Empire? Without understanding that, you don't understand the book. So we need to know what's happening in the Roman Empire. And it's amazing when you start studying the history of this time period, which is about uh, 95 AD. The first thing you need to know is that Rome believed it had a divine right to rule the world. They called this manifest destiny. Did you ever hear that before? Is there another country that says we have a manifest destiny? That we believe that God founded our country? And Rome believed that they were chosen by the gods, the Roman gods, to uh, rule the world. And thus they had a right to go in and uh, conquer other nations. Because they were going to Romanize the world. And they saw that as a good thing. We've ever had presidents say that we are exporting democracy? We think that that's our right to export democracy? Well, Rome believed that it had a right to export the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture. And uh, they didn't see this as a bad thing. They saw this as a good thing. This is what the gods wanted them to do. And we see what we do as a, as a good thing. It's fraught with a lot of problems, though. When you go in and try to export something to another country, guess what happens? They don't want what you have. They wanted what you have, guess what they would have done? They would have had it already. So Rome goes in with its tremendous military force, and we're talking about force like no other empire ever had in history up to that time. Sound like another nation that you know? And they would walk in and they would bring their soldiers right to the edge of that border and they would say, we are here to bring you peace. Pax Romana, Roman peace. Universal peace. And we offer it to you as our gift. And all you have to do is align with us. Submit. And if the people said, we don't want it, then they would go in and they would bring the peace through the sword. They would go in and they would invade the country. And they would take over that land. And uh, this is how they would bring in the peace. And then they would maintain the peace through a process that they called law and order. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, that's because America is built on a Greco-Roman model. My three sons went to a college that's taught the Greco-Roman model of civilization as being the epitome of civilization. And so our government is very similar in many ways, not in all ways, as the Roman government. And Rome was a domination system. They would go in and they would basically dominate the people that they invaded. They dominated their own people. And they dominated people, they controlled people, through various means. Uh, one would be through taxes. You want to control somebody? Take their money. <coughs> they taxed people to the hill. And they gave people benefits. We'll provide you with certain benefits because Rome, when they came in and offered their services to a nation, 
They offered you their benefits. What's one of the benefits? We'll protect you. We'll protect you from other foreign invaders. That's sort of like the mafia. And the mafia comes in, guess what they do? We'll protect you. Yeah, they'll protect you from who? Themselves. <laughs> you pay us, we'll protect you. Well, Rome offered benefits to people. And some of those benefits were very good. One was protection from outside invaders, but they did offer benefits. And they believed that uh, you know, they, they provided feasts for people. They provided uh, Olympic-type games for people, entertainment for people. It didn't cost the people anything. There were a lot of things that Rome provided for people. Uh, but in exchange for that, you had to submit to Rome. And you had to recognize that Caesar was the lord of the universe. And you had to honor him and submit to him. So they believed that uh, they were chosen by the gods to rule the world, and through them, through Rome, the gods would pass down through Rome the blessings to the universe, to the rest of the people. And so the meet, the lead god in Rome was Zeus or Jupiter. Zeus was his Greek name, Rome. his Roman name was Jupiter. So they believed that Jupiter was the main god, he was the big god in heaven, the almighty god. And he would pass down his blessings or his favor upon the earthlings. And those blessings or favor would come down through Caesar. And then down through Caesar to the people. And so Caesar owned everything. He owned everything in the world. Was hidden. And then he would distribute. If he conquered the land, he owned the land. And then guess what he would do with it? He'd give some to Paul. And then he would give some to James. See? Give some to Larry. So, if you wanted to be blessed, the blessing came down from Caesar, and then Larry would give some to land to his friends a little bit. Sort of like the feudal system. Where you had a lord who was the patron of all these people, and in return, what did they do in the feudal system? Served the lord. Worked his land. You know, all these kinds of things. And paid honor to their lord. So the key lord was Caesar, and guess what? Everybody paid honor and homage to Caesar. See? And then you had all these underlords, in a sense. You had these people called patrons, and these patrons had clients. And these patrons took care of their clients, like the feudal system. And in return, the clients would give honor to the patrons. And everybody knew his place in the pecking order. Now, 90% of the people were right down here at the bottom. They did whatever they were told. <coughs> Just like in the feudal system, those old movies that you see back in the 1300s and 1400s and 1500s in England, where all the people, they just worked the land, but guess what? The Lord of the castle says we must go to war. And guess what all the people do? They go to war. That's, what, that's how Rome was. It's not, nothing new. So Caesar was God, and uh, or Jupiter was God, and Caesar was his representative on earth, and thus Caesar was called the Son of God. Now, you need to know all that. Because if you don't understand that, you won't understand really what's going on here. Everything was based on your spot in society. You had a, you were, you had a status. And whatever your status was, that's where you were the rest of your life. It's sort of like a caste system. Okay. So Rome's great goal was to have this universal peace. Now, with that understanding, I want you to listen to this. John says in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. Grace or favor and peace from him who is and was 
and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So what you have here is he says, grace and peace from him who was the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ. Now many commentators, when they read those words in verse 4, grace and peace, say, now this is a typical salutation that's found in many of the books of the Bible. Paul says, grace and peace. You see grace and peace. That's how a lot of the books of the Bible open up. And they say that is a dual greeting. Grace is the way you would greet Gentiles or Greeks. Peace is a Jewish greeting. Shalom. So, the church is made up of both Gentiles and Jews, and so John and Paul and others use both a Gentile greeting, grace, and a Jewish greeting, peace. That cannot be further from the truth. And that's where the commentators really mess up, because when you know the history you realize that what's happening here is that in a political context, Rome believed that grace or favor and peace came down from Jupiter and through his son Caesar. The Lord, Caesar. And what does John, where does John say grace and peace comes from? From him who is, not from, not from God the Father, him who is, was, and is to come. From the Spirit and from the Son. Not from Jupiter and Caesar, but from God and His Son. This is a political statement that slaps Rome right in the face and says Rome cannot really give you anything. It doesn't offer you anything of any eternal value. Real grace, real favor, real blessing comes down from the Father and comes from Jesus and so does peace. It does not come from the Roman government. So, what you have is that verse 4 contradicts Rome's claim to bring universal peace upon the earth and blessings from Caesar and Jupiter. So, where does this grace and peace come from? Number one, it comes from him who is, and who was, and is to come. That's the eternal God, who is, and was, never was a time that he didn't exist, never a time that he won't exist, is to come. That's the eternal God, not from Jupiter. That's a slap in Rome's face. And then it says, from the seven spirits who were before his throne. Now we don't know who this is. We don't know if this is, represents seven angels who surround the throne of God and do his bidding. They're messengers to bring grace and peace to the earth. Or whether this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and your Bibles may have a footnote there. You may see a cross reference that says, that says Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Because in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, it describes the Holy Spirit as manifesting himself in seven different ways. Do any of your Bibles have that? Isaiah 11, 1 and 2? Now, there's a problem with that. In the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit only manifests himself in six ways. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, there they list seven ways. So we don't know whether it means the Holy Spirit or whether it means that angels, seven spirits, come and do God's bidding for him. We're just not certain on that. But I want you to notice where the seven spirits are located. They are before his throne. Which says something, doesn't it? It says God is king of the universe and not Jupiter. See, that? that's what they're trying. John, see, to John's readers, not to us, 
in 2010 who don't really know history and don't understand the political context. We read grapes and peace. That sounds like some nice little spiritual thing, doesn't it? But the John's readers, they say, oh, grace doesn't come from Jupiter? Doesn't come from Caesar? No, it comes from the eternal God, the God of the Christians and the Jews. And so this is a, really a slap in Rome's face. And then he says in verse 5, from Jesus Messiah. From Jesus Messiah. Now notice how Jesus is described there. First of all, he's described as Christ, which is not his last name. It means Messiah. He's described as a faithful witness, if you keep going on in the verse. The faithful witness. And many of you know that word witness comes from the Greek word martyr. He witnessed to the truth, and guess what? It cost him his life. He was put to death. Rome did not like what Jesus said, because Jesus was telling the truth. He said, we're not going to pay homage to Jupiter. We pay honor to God the Father, and it cost him his life. Jesus was not put to death because he was a spiritual teacher. Rome couldn't care. They had a lot of spiritual teachers roaming around. They could kill spiritual teachers. They didn't like it because he stood against their political policies. He was like a prophet. They saw Jesus as a prophet from old who was railing. Just like John the Baptist. Remember John? What happened to him? Got his head cut off. That's what happens when you speak against the government and you speak God's truth to power. And so he's a faithful witness and he dies for his faith. It cost him his life. And therefore he becomes a model for these seven churches. We too are to be faithful witnesses. We don't take what the government doles out. We don't defend the government no matter what. A lot of Americans want to defend the American government no matter what. We don't do that. Would you have done that if you were born in Cuba? Would you have defended that government no matter what? If you were born in the Soviet Union, would you have defended that government no, more, no matter what? If you were born in Germany when Hitler was running the show, would you have defended that government no matter what under the banner of patriotism? I hope you wouldn't. But guess what? Many Christians did. You always look at your government in light of Scripture and what Jesus teaches, and then you witness to the truth, no matter what. Now, it may cost you your life, and it cost Jesus his life, and he's the model for these churches who are going to be persecuted by the emperor at that time, and guess what they are to do? Not to compromise, not beg for their life. They, too, are to be a faithful witness and even martyr, be martyred for the faith. So this is how he starts it off. You have a model. That you are to follow. Now look what else Jesus is called in verse 5. The firstborn from among the dead. And what does that mean? That means God raised you from the dead, doesn't it? Is he the secondborn? Is he the lastborn from the dead? If he's the first, what does that indicate? That there's more. And if you die for your faith, guess what? God will raise you from the dead. So, here's Rome. They said, we're going to shut up this prophet. That's how they saw Jesus. We're going to shut up this prophet. We're going to kill him. And guess what God did? Raising from the dead. So Rome's most brutal and powerful weapon, which was death, was totally ineffective. 
Now, Rome took over the world with the use of force by threatening to kill people. But against Jesus Christ, totally ineffective, three days later, God raises him from the dead. Now, he's our model, and guess what? He's the firstborn. He's the heir of God through the resurrection, declared to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection. And that means that we, his followers, even if we're put to death, even if those people in the seven churches are put to death, they can take all that Caesar throws at them because God will raise us from the dead too. may not happen three days later, but it could happen one day later. We don't know. might not happen for a thousand years. But God will raise us from the dead as well. And persecution is going to soon start. These things are going to shortly come to pass, and they need to be ready for this because otherwise would Satan and Caesar raise their sword and threaten you with death. If you're concerned about sparing your life, you'll give in, you'll cave in. And they're saying, John is saying, don't do that. And then look what he says about Jesus in verse 5. Calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now this is an absolute slap in the face of Caesar, because Caesar is the king of kings. That was one of Caesar's titles, king of kings. See, when they took over a country, they allowed that country to still have its king. One of the worst things you can do, we learned this as Americans, is to invade the country and destroy its whole political system. Then all you do is have chaos. That's what happened in Iraq. What you do is you go into a country, Rome knew this, they learned it the hard way. You go in and you would conquer the country, but then you make a deal with the king. <laughs> and you say, look, you take care of us, we'll take care of you. You get the taxes for us, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you can stay in your palace and all this stuff. And so they had these deals, and so each little country had its king, but guess what Caesar was? He was the king of kings. He was the ruler of all kings. And notice what John calls Jesus, the ruler uh, over the kings of the earth. Who's one of the kings of the earth, by the way? Who's the biggest king of the earth in this day? Caesar himself. Now, notice the progression. You see the progression? The progression is... First, he was a faithful witness. He was a martyr. He died. Second, in verse 5, God raised him from the dead. And third, he became the ruler over the kings of the earth through the resurrection. He exalts him and puts him in his right hand and sets him on his throne. So here we see that uh, Jesus is described as the chief or the ruler or the prince of the kings of the earth. One way of saying this is Jesus is God's Caesar. Domitian... The emperor was Jupiter's Caesar. Jesus is God's Caesar. And he rules the whole universe. And so he is the, literally the king of kings. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And again, you might see a cross-reference in your Bible to Psalm 89, verse 27, where God says, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. And then what you have is you have this cacophony of praise that comes forth. This doxology. And look what it says. It says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins and has made us to be kings and priests to his Father God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so he's now going to, uh, he starts praising him. See the word in the middle of verse 5, to him who loved us. Do you see that? To him. To him. Look in the middle of verse 6. To him. you see that? To him 
be glory and dominion this week and next week. No, forever and ever. So what we have is that Christ now, because he has been made ruler, right now that means he's the king, isn't he? And that means he has dominion right now, whether Caesar realizes it or not. And his dominion is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. And then John says to this, Amen. So you have this doxology. Now, notice the basis for this doxology. Why do we say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever? Why the doxology at the end of verse 6? Because of what he's done for us at the end of verse 5. Look what it says. Number one, he loved us. See that? He loved us. He was compassionate toward us. Number two, he washed us. What did he wash us from? From our sins. How did he do it? Through his own death, through his own blood. See? And notice what else he has done. He's made us, verse 6, kings and priests. He's made us kings and priests. Notice it doesn't say he will make us kings and priests. Do you see that? Notice the past tense. He's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. So, right now we're kings and priests. Right now we represent God on earth. We are the kings. We are the priests who represent God on earth. Therefore, Dr. Cain just said before, he talked about authority. Guess who really has authority on earth? We do. Right now. Because he has made us kings and priests. We don't use our authority because we don't think we have any authority. We don't think we can stand up and talk to people and speak truth to power. We don't think we have power to touch people and ask God to heal them and he'll do it. We just don't do have any of that kind of faith. But we have that kind of authority. And we need to use it as citizens of heaven. So the kingdom, we're kings and priests right now and he's ruling right now. So you would say the kingdom has already arrived in some sense, hasn't it? If he's ruling, is the kingdom arrived in some sense? It's already here. If we're kings, right now, the kingdom's here in some sense, isn't it? It's not here in its fullness, but in some sense, it is here already, and we're just waiting for the consummation of the kingdom, its fullness, which has yet to come. And all this then points to the future. And look what he says. And now we're going to go to the far future. All that's what's happening now. Now look what he says in verse 7. Behold, he is coming. Now we saw the doxology to the sun. Now we're going to see the descent. The descent of the sun. Notice it says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming. Meaning he's coming to earth. When he comes to earth, that's not a good time for his enemies. Okay? He's coming. How is he coming? He's coming with clouds. Uh, this is a, a repeat of Daniel 7.13. Probably not literal clouds. If he came and it's a clear day, he wouldn't be coming with clouds. Okay. Probably the clouds is a reference to angels. That's how Psalms uses the word clouds and angels synonymously. <laughs> so it's probably coming with angels. And then look at the result. Look at the response of his coming. And every eye will see him. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 12. That's a, this is going to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Behold, every eye will see him. He's coming and every eye will see him. 
We're going to call this, notice it's every eye. Do you see that? We're going to call this a universal beholding. A universal beholding. Every eye will see him. And then we're going to call this next little phrase a universal bemoaning. Look what it says. Even they who pierced him. Even they who pierced him. Those who put him to death are going to see him when he comes. And they're not going to be welcoming him back. They're going to be moaning the fact that he's coming back. This is not a moan of repentance. This is a moan of judgment. Because when he comes back, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So, there's going to be a sense in which when he comes back, we will praise him. We'll be glad he comes back, but his enemies won't. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. See, that's not a good word, is it? They're all going to mourn because of him. They're not going to be mourned because he was put to death 2,000 years ago. They're going to mourn because they're going to be judged. It's their death that's coming. See, So Christ will be praised in the end by the believers, but justice will prevail in the end for unbelievers. So we have this doxology. We have the Son of the Son. We see the descent of the Son. Now we have this declaration. could be from the Son. Look what he says in verse 8. In fact, we see it says uh, they mourn because because of him. Even so, Amen. So we have this Amen again. Second Amen. Let that be. And now we have this declaration, probably from Christ. Here's what he says: If your Bible may have it in red letters, I am the Alpha and the Omega. King James also adds the beginning and the end. Uh, alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The omega being the end letter, the last letter of the alphabet. Notice the word I. Do you see that? In uh, the Greek text, it means I alone am the alpha and the omega. Strong emphasis there. Says the Lord. Now watch this. Who is and was and who is to come. Same as verse 4. This is why we don't know whether this is Jesus making the proclamation or the Father making the proclamation. We're just not certain. But certainly represents deity, God speaking. He says, the one who is, right now, the one who was, and never was not, in the past, eternally in the past, the one who is to come. And so this is the eternal God. And then look how he describes himself. Right at the end of verse 8. The Almighty. Which is a Hebrew way of talking about God and you know the Hebrew word, El Shaddai. The one who was, is, and is to come, El Shaddai. Shad in the Hebrew, which means breast. Which speaks of sustaining life. But when you add dad or die to the end of it, it means destroyer. God Almighty. The one who can sustain life, yet the one who destroys life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so when he comes back, what we're going to have is we're going to see that the saints are sustained and his enemies are destroyed by the same God. That word Almighty is used nine times in the book of Revelation. And so when the Lord returns, two things are going to happen. The saints will be delivered. And the enemies of God will be destroyed. That right there is the end game. Until that, verses 1 through 7 
or the present game. We need to be ready for whatever comes upon us. And then in verse 9, John picks up his pen and he starts talking about his own life. And now he is a companion in tribulation. You see that? I, both your brother, I, John, both your brother and a companion in tribulation, and what? Kingdom. See, the kingdom is right here. He sees himself as being part of the kingdom right now. And that's where we'll pick up next week as John describes the things that he sees coming upon the earth in the near future. Let's pray. Father, I thank you.